Good morning, Sovereign Grace. If you're a visitor here, welcome. We are going to be in Ephesians 4 this morning, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, as we consider one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Turn with me, if you have not already, to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're not very familiar with your Bibles, it's in the New Testament. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, then Ephesians. If you've gotten to Philippians or Colossians, you have gone too far. So Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Look with me there at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray that the Spirit would give us understanding. Father, we ask that your Spirit would illumine our minds to understand your word. That we would understand what it is that Paul is saying here to the church at Ephesus and to your people really in every church and every generation. We pray that Christ would speak to us and that we would put aside all worldly distractions. That we'd put aside our concerns that presently confront us. That we would put aside our devices that distract us. And that we would hear Christ as he speaks to his church through his word, by his spirit, using a humble instrument such as me. We pray we would hear the word in truth, that you would guard us from all error. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'm beginning a series on baptism, and this series will continue into the evening service tonight as we start back into Genesis 12 next week on Sunday morning. And that series will go in the evening sermons from tonight forward. As you know, I'm sure you don't have to be even very historically astute to be aware of the fact that baptism has often led both to visible division among churches and to spiritual divisiveness among churches. And those are very different things. It's led both to visible division and spiritual division divisiveness. I thought about titling the sermon instead of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I thought about titling it baptism, the waters that unite rather than divide. As you know, that has been the case for centuries. I'm going to contend this morning. I want you to hear the central contention. It's the whole sermon, if you will, in a nutshell. I want to contend that we can have earnest and vigorous disagreement. 
and yet have earnest and vigorous disagreement in a manner that honors Christ and is eager to maintain the unity that we have in the Spirit. I know we live in a cultural moment where important disagreements seem to mean that we have to be divisive and in disunity. We personalize all truth claims, subjectivize them, and every time you disagree with me, you're attacking me. That is a fundamentally deep misunderstanding of the nature of truth. We can disagree earnestly and vigorously and not attack each other doing it. Not take it personally, if you will. I want to contend that we can have, we can have important, important doctrinal disagreements and eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. We can do that. Now, there are varieties of views on baptism in the Christian world, from what's happening in Eastern Orthodoxy to Roman Catholicism to Lutheranism to the Church of Christ or the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement with the Disciples of Christ, etc. I'm not going to get into all that. For our purposes, I want to look particularly at the agreements, the agreements and disagreements between the, if you will, Presbyterian and Reform world. I'll just say P&R, Presbyterian, those who are in England, Scotland, Ireland, Reformed, historically I'm talking about, those who are on the continent, Germans, Dutch, French, Swiss, Italians, etc. Between that world, the Presbyterian or P&R world for short, and between the Baptist world, and by the Baptist world, I mean expressly those who we would today contemporarily call Reformed Baptists. They weren't called Reformed Baptists in the 17th century. That really doesn't matter for our purposes. We call them that now. I want to look at our agreements and disagreements between those two groups. Why? Because we have members of our church from both of those schools of thought, from both of those viewpoints. We don't have anybody in our church who has the Roman Catholic view of baptism. You wouldn't be a member here if you did. And we don't have anybody who has the Lutheran view of baptism. And we don't have anybody who has the restoration movement view of baptism, which is, is i.e., Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, etc. Et we don't have anybody in, in our membership who has those views of baptism. We essentially have people in our membership who are of two views. That which came out of the U.K., in the 17th century Baptists, who wrote their early document called the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and then eventually when they came to America wrote further confessions, generally shorter ones, and the Presbyterian and Reform people. That's the two groups we have here. So I want to begin by setting the table for this series upon our broad and deep agreement. What is it that we agree upon? What is it we agree upon? Where do we agree in the Christian faith? Well, we can see the broad and deep agreement between the Presbyterian and Reformed and the Reformed Baptists by considering the confessions of the Presbyterians in the 17th century and Reformed, if you will. The Congregationalists, the Congregationalists would be men like John Owen and Thomas Goodwin. They are guys who would have been with the Presbyterian and Reformed on baptism, but not with them on church government. Okay? 
and the Baptists, i.e. those who came out of the Congregationalists, agreed with the Congregationalists on church government, but not on baptism. You guys follow me on that? Three groups, they wrote three confessions. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, that was the Congregationalists, and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, you can guess which group that was. In those three documents, we see their broad and deep agreement. Consider these agreements as their confessional chapters. I want you to this. Their confessional chapters are intentionally and nearly identical in every one of these areas. And they're identical by design in every one of these areas. Listen to this. The doctrine of Scripture as our authority what we believe about Scripture, and the fact that it is our sole authority. The doctrine of God with regard to his being and his triunity. The doctrine of God's decrees. In other words, what did God decide to do, if you will? Speaking improperly, it's got, God's not up there deliberating, going, what shall I do? You know, so, but what did he decree to do in time and history? The doctrine of God's creation. The doctrine of God's providence. How does he govern all things? The doctrine of man. Man as body and soul, created in the image of God, in true righteousness and holiness, yet capable of fall. The doctrine of the fall of man and sin. How did man fall? Original sin. The passing down of guilt and corruption of sin the depravity of man, etc. The doctrine of God's covenant, inasmuch as we all believe that God made a covenant of works, if you will, with Adam, for lack of a different term, covenant of works with Adam, which Adam violated, and then God made a second covenant of grace with or in Christ, which Christ secured for us. Now, there are a variety of ways that The Baptist camp will put that in language, but they mean essentially those two things. We're either in Adam or in Christ. The doctrine of Christ's person and work. He is the God-man, the anthropos. One person, two natures, equal in power and authority. And his work, he became incarnate. He walked among us. He did miracles. He was perfect without sin. He kept the law in every regard. He paid for the penalty on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day and was declared victorious and innocent and holy and undefiled, vindicated before principalities and powers. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he presently rules and reigns and he poured out the Holy Spirit. And we have the same doctrine of that Holy Spirit, which we refer to as the doctrine of salvation, or in other words, the doctrine of salvation, i.e., the how the Holy Spirit applies the person and work of Christ to us. So we have the same doctrine on free will, the same doctrine on calling, the same doctrine on election, the same doctrine of justification, the same doctrine of sanctification, the same doctrine of saving faith, the same doctrine of repentance, of glorification, of adoption, of good works, of perseverance of the saints, and of assurance of salvation. 
We have the same doctrine of the law in its nature and uses in the Old and New Testament. We have the same doctrine of Christian liberty. We have the same doctrine of Christian worship on the Lord's Day according to the regulation of Scripture. We have the same doctrine of marriage, of oaths and vows. We had a bit of a different doctrine of the state, but after some changes in Western civilization, they're much closer now. We have the same doctrine of the return of Christ, the bodily resurrection, heaven, hell, and pretty much almost nearly all the end times issues. Now think about that. You're like, what's left? There are a couple important issues left. Our agreement on all these doctrines mattered greatly to the Baptists. I say it mattered greatly to the Baptists because, remember, first you have Presbyterians, and from them emerge Congregationalists, and from them emerge the Baptists. So each new emerging group wants to demonstrate that they're part of the fold. They're part of the family, in spite of their disagreements. The Baptists wrote their confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, to nearly mimic exactly the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration in order to show that they're part of the same Protestant and Reformed Christian faith. They actually say, we get into some wording differences in all these articles, but not because we have substantial differences in the faith. Where the substantial differences are become obvious. They were keen to make sure that they were not being confused with the Anabaptists. They actually say in some of their documents, who were falsely called Anabaptists about themselves. Why? Because the Anabaptists were denying essentials of the Christian faith. They denied that Christ had a human body. They denied that you're justified by faith alone. They denied that God's the sole authority for the church is Scripture alone. And we could go on and on from there. And they wanted to be clear, we're not with that group. We might baptize the way they do, but we're not with them. They wanted to be clear that they saw the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, and the Continental Reform, Dutch, German, Swiss, French, Italian, etc., etc., as true churches and of the same faith. And they were hoping that the Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Reformed would see them as the same. In fact, their confession, like I said, is nearly a copy of the Westminster Confession of the Savoy Declaration. Listen, listen to their own preferatory letter. I'm not just making this up. Listen. This is the Baptists. We did, in like manner, conclude it best to follow their example, i.e., the Westminster Confession of Savoy, in making use of the very same words with them in both these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine are the same with theirs. Did you hear that? And this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both, i.e. Presbyterians and Congregationalists, with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world. They're talking about the Continental Reform. They're thinking of Second Helvetic Confession, a Belgic Confession, these kind of things. On behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities. 
And also, listen to what they say, and also to convince all that we have no itch, no itch to clog religion with new words, but do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words, which has been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine, which with so clear evidence of scriptures, they have asserted. You hear what they're saying. We're of the same Protestant Christian faith. There is only one Christian faith, beloved. Only one. And we are all of it. All those who believe in Christ are of it. Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, the Continental Reformed, they all started to come to understand this over time. Initially, there were deep misunderstandings and some really silly behavior, frankly, and wicked behavior. But over time, they came to understand this. However, while they understood our deep and broad unity, they also understood we had important and significant disagreements. Disagreements that have led to visible division into separate churches, associations, and denominations, as you all are aware. So let's talk about what we differ upon. Wherein do we differ? Doctrine of the church, namely its polity, and the makeup of its membership. Is it believers or believers and their children? And are churches required to be connected with one another or not? Those were three areas of disagreements. The doctrine of the sacrament of baptism or the ordinance of baptism, all the groups were happy with either word. They agreed on much there too, but they had a disagreement on proper parties. Now, listen, it's amazing how much agreement all these groups had on even what baptism is. So listen to this. Both the London Baptist Confession and the Westminster Confession define baptism in the same way as to what it is. Baptism is. The London Baptist Confession picks this language up and alters one phrase that is in the Westminster Larger Catechism with what's in the Westminster Confession. So in other words, they're still taking from the Westminster Standards. They define it the same way. Baptism is to be unto the party baptized, in other words, the person being baptized, a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. Westminster Confession has regeneration there, but in the larger catechism, they have death and resurrection, and so the Baptists took that. They preferred that language clearer. In his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ, to live and walk in newness of life. The Baptists got that definition from the Presbyterians. They had the same general definition of what baptism is as to its nature. We all agree that baptism is ordained by Christ to be practiced in the whole of the new covenant church as a sign of him. And his benefits. 
sign of him and his benefits. We all agree that the sign of baptism, listen, this is an important one, maybe one of the most fundamental ones, that the sign of baptism does not work automatically. In other words, we all agree that getting baptized into water does not automatically confer upon you the Holy Spirit and thus union with Christ. The water does not have some inherent power that unites you to Christ. We all agree on that. We can say it this way. We all believe that one must have saving faith to inwardly receive the Christ who is outwardly and visibly promised in baptism. Do not miss that agreement. We all agree that without faith, without faith, baptism is not effective to give the salvation promised in it. In other words, we all agree that without faith, baptism is of no saving profit. Without faith, baptism is of no saving profit. By the way, I'm quoting Ursinus, a Dutch reform guy. We all agree that baptism is the sign of initiation, entrance into the church, given to all who are proper members of the covenant people of God, and that baptism visibly separates God's people from the world so that we know those who are inside the church, like Paul will use in 1 Corinthians 5, and those who are outside of the church. So I will not be arguing, here's my point in this series. I say all that to say, I will not be arguing for every positive proposition wherein we agree. So you're like, prove that baptism does not, as the water itself, justify you. I'm not going to prove that because we all agree that's on that already. So I'm going to spend time on the things where we disagree. Our disagreements regarding baptism. So where do we disagree on baptism, just so you know? It's in three things I just want you to hear quickly. We disagree on proper parties to baptism. In other words, should we baptize believers only or professing believers only in fairness? Professing believers only. Or should we baptize professing believers and their children? That's a disagreement. It's just three words. And their children. You hear that? That's the big disagreement. That's the most fundamental disagreement. Second, is baptism a sign and seal Or a sign only. We disagree on that. In other words, is baptism both a visible word showing God's promises, a sign, a visible word showing God's promises, and a visible guarantee that God will keep his promises, a seal? Or is baptism only a visible word showing God's promises, a sign? Third, is baptism in water only properly administered by immersion? Or can pouring and sprinkling also be seen as proper? That's the third area. So, parties, mode, do I have to dunk you all the way in or can I pour water on you? You understand? Okay, mode, and sign and seal or just sign. Now, let me tell you this. I think it's important I just say this really quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on mode right now or in this series Later on, I'll deal with that. But in this immediate series, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that or, or the sign and seal language, and here's why. No Baptist will say to you, well, as long as you fully immerse the baby, we're good with it. Okay? Their issue is not ultimately, nor is the issue ultimately, 
what's the mode? That is an issue worth dealing with, but it is not the primary issue. It's to whom do you give this sign? Their issue isn't even, well, as long as you just say you're signing the baby and not sealing the baby, we're okay with that. So I want to deal really with the fundamental question. Who are the proper parties? Who has a right to the sign and seal or the sign, whether they're dunked or sprinkled or poured or whatever? Who has a right to it? The reason I say, by the way, I use the word proper with regard to proper mode is because the original Reformed Baptists did not think that baptism via pouring or sprinkling was invalid. They thought it was improper. What do we mean by that? They believed that those baptized by pouring or sprinkling were validly baptized. You can see letters of church transfer from Presbyterian churches to Baptist churches from that era. They don't ask them to be redone in baptism because they weren't immersed. So they didn't think that that made it invalid. They thought it was improper. If you want more on that, I have resources to point you to. In our series that starts tonight, I'm only going to deal with the first disagreement. Who are the proper parties? That's really the essence of the debate. Who are the proper parties? Baptists would not say, as long as you get the other two things we have a concern with right, it's okay if you give baptism to infants. They would not. So that really is the essence of the debate. Who are the proper parties? In other words, who ought to be baptized? At some point in the future, I'll deal with the other things. But the proper parties is the essence of the dispute. So that's where I'm going to spend my time. Views on proper parties to baptism show where the fundamental disagreement lies between the Baptists and the PNR. Their fundamental disagreement is ground in what they each believe about this, the covenants and the people of God. I want you to understand that. This whole discussion of proper parties is a fruit of what you believe about the covenants and people of God. They have disagreements right there. And thus, their outcomes in how they see the sacraments. What are God's covenants? Who is in God's covenants? Are they essentially unified covenants or diverse? And what is their unity and diversity? Those are the debates. So tonight, I will begin looking at our disagreements, and I'll continue to do so in the evening services, by looking at the covenants and people of God. This morning, however, I want to address how we ought to approach our disagreements how we ought to approach them. And here's my contention. We ought to disagree. We ought to disagree in a manner that is consistent with those saved by Jesus Christ. In a manner that is eagerly, that word eagerly, doing your very best. Eagerly seeking to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I want you to hear that, and I want to talk about how we do that. So our sermon, that was all introduction. Our sermon has two major points. They'll go fairly quickly. First, the exhortation to walk worthy by maintaining the unity of the Spirit. That's the first point. The exhortation that Paul gives to walk worthy by maintaining the unity of the Spirit. And that'll be in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 6. Second, 
the unity of the Spirit that is actually or really already ours, verses 4 through 6. We're not creating, please hear this, we are not creating the unity of the Spirit. We're not making the unity of the Spirit happen. It's already ours and we are maintaining it. Maintaining it. So I want you to see how both how we maintain it and that we have it already. So the exhortation, let's start there. The exhortation to walk worthy by maintaining our unity in the Spirit. Look with me at Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I want to make a couple brief observations. First, note that this begins with, I, therefore, urge you. I therefore urge you. Paul is in prison for the gospel. That's what he means. He's just said it in Ephesians 3, 1, that he's a prisoner for the Lord. In prison for the gospel. And in that context, as a prisoner for the gospel, he is pleading with the Ephesian church. And the plea starts out much like his plea in Romans 12, 1 does, doesn't it? Therefore, in view of God's mercy. Here it's basically, therefore, in view of your calling. What is their calling? What he's saying when he says that therefore is he's summarizing and saying walk worthy of this calling. He's summarizing the first three chapters of Ephesians, which covers their gospel calling. They've been blessed. Listen, let me just summarize the first three chapters really quickly for you. They've been blessed by God the Father with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They've been elected by the Father, blood by the Son, Renewed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Christ and all his benefits are theirs. They've been called to salvation in Christ by the renewing and enlightening of the Holy Spirit. They have a glorious inheritance in Christ to which they've been called. They have been called from sin and death to life and salvation. They have gained access to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. They've been united with all other believers, Jew and Gentile, and are being built up into a holy temple in which the Lord dwells. They have been brought into the church, which displays God's manifold wisdom to the principalities and powers. They've received the love of God, which is too deep and too wide and too high for them to even fathom. That's a lot in the first three chapters. So now they're told to walk worthy of that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of all that. They once, Ephesians 2, walked, same language, they once walked in trespasses and sins. They were created anew, Ephesians 2.10, created anew in Christ to walk in good works. They are to walk worthy of all this. He's going to actually go down and define walking worthy in different ways as you move through the book of Ephesians. They are to walk in love as imitators of God. They are to walk in the light as children of the light and not the darkness. They are to walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time for the days are evil, etc., etc. They're going to keep going on. They are not to walk as the Gentiles do as they used to in unbelief. They're to walk worthy of all this. So what does walking worthy of our calling look like? Look at Ephesians Four, two, and three. Here's how you walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The primary thrust 
is that to walk worthy of their calling, they must be eager, doing their best to pursue and maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Please pay attention. They are not, they are not being called to create the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They already have that. They're being called to maintain what is already theirs. Not only to maintain it, but to eagerly maintain it. To do their utmost to maintain it. How, I mean, I guess we should ask all of us, how eager are you to maintain the unity and peace of the church? I don't merely mean how much are you doing your best to maintain unity by guarding your mouth, but also by guarding your own heart. Some of you are good at being quiet, but it doesn't mean good things are happening in your heart. You can honor Christ with your lips and your hearts can be far from him. So this is first about guarding your own heart toward Christ's church, toward Christ's people. You can have significant, please understand this, you can have significant disagreements with other believers, but they're still your family in Christ. And they will be forever. You might as well start working on it now. You're unified with them. So are you putting forth your best effort to maintain that? Well, this maintenance of unity in the spirit in the church is accomplished. I want you to hear this like, how do I put forward my best effort to maintain that? It's accomplished through the church's holiness. In other words, you will not put forth any good effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in Christ's church if you are not growing in holiness. The church's holiness guards her unity. That's why you see Christ in John 17 praying both for the church's holiness and the church's unity together. They can't be separated from one another. Don't miss this. It's the holiness of the church that is necessary to maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Look at the four characteristics he gives in Ephesians 4 too. Notice this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love. Now, humility and gentleness are grouped together. Patience and bearing with one another in love are grouped together. And I want to look at these for a brief moment. What is humility and gentleness here? What is that? Too often we think of humility and gentleness as just an affect, an aesthetic feel we get off of a person. It's not what it is. Let me tell you how it was used negatively. Negatively, humility and gentleness. When I say negatively, I don't mean it's bad. I mean how it was used negatively. you'll, You'll get it. It is like the one who bows down in subjection. Like a slave. Like a lowly and debased person. Humility and gentleness. It speaks of one who's poor and insignificant. Positively, it is asserting that our hearts and minds are to be this way before God, before his word, and before one another. Our hearts and minds are to 
bow down like slaves, servants, regarding ourselves as insignificant and the other as more significant with regard to God, his word, and one another. This is to the one to whom the Lord looks. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at his word. This is the person who says, listen, I know the truth about me and the extravagant grace of God toward me. And I want to live in all humility. I want to be gentle and meek with others as God has been with me. Gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Thus, you are not harsh with others. You know what leads to harshness with others? You think highly of yourself. To be gentle is to not think highly of yourself, thus you aren't harsh with others. In classical Greek, this word might be used for something like mild words or, or soothing medicine. You do not harshly look down on someone else because you are not overly impressed with yourself. Rather, you step into care and confront with gentleness. With gentleness. The gentle and lowly person bows down before God and his word as his slave, as his child, as one who's poor in spirit. He thus is the person who is not overly impressed with himself. He is the person who knows his own neediness for grace. Therefore, he can behave properly with others. He seeks the good of others above his own. In other words, if you're not picking it up, this man is like Jesus. These two terms actually come together when Jesus describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Same two words. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus as the Christ, was submissive to the Father. He was completely dependent upon him, devoted to him, and humble before men. Do you hear that? Humble before men. He sought to be the servant and the helper, showing compassion and gentleness to his people. A bruised reed he does not break, and a faintly burning wick he does not snuff out. And as his people called to union with him, we ought to imitate him and walk in love as he did. Thus, we also need to be patient, bearing with one another in love. To be patient is to be slow in retaliating when hurt by another. It's to... Be slow to vengeance, to trust the Lord with that. Forbearance is another way of saying to be long-suffering. Long-suffering in love. You understand that means that these people are difficult for you. If you have to be humble and gentle and patient and long-suffering in love, that means you're dealing with people who aren't always easy for you, doesn't it? I've said this before. You've heard me say it. I, you, you don't come to pick up your wife for your anniversary, give her flowers and say, these 25 years I've suffered long with you in love. Right? 
This means you're bearing the weakness of others. You're not ceasing to love your fellow Christian because they have faults that offend or irritate you. You seek to love them, which means you seek their highest good above your own. And it shows up in humbly, gently, patiently forbearing others in their faults, offenses, and weaknesses. God is patient and long-suffering in love with you, isn't he? Gentle with you. How could you fail to extend that to others? Except that you just don't understand the grace you've been shown by God. It's another way to say, if you will, that we're to be like him, to imitate him. Paul will say that. Walk in love as imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1. Paul will describe that, all of this more in Ephesians 4 and 5, which I'm not going to get into, 6, which I'm not going to get into now. What I want you to grasp is that these holy dispositions of our hearts and minds are the necessary ingredients to eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. These godly characteristics will help us avoid what disturbs the peace and unity of the church. Humble, lowly, patient, long-suffering in love people do not cause disunity in Christ's body. It's the opposite of all that that causes disunity in Christ's body. These things help us avoid quarreling, fighting, backbiting, gossiping, slandering, looking down on others, becoming irritated and impatient. Think of all that we do to offend the Lord Jesus. Like the next time you're thinking about someone who offends you, Think of all you do to offend the Lord Jesus. And yet he was humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing in love with us. In fact, consider the people who irritate you. I know somebody's popping in your head right now. Consider the people who irritate you, offend you, people who hurt you, people who if you're really honest with yourself, you think are lower than you in some way. In some way, if you're really honest with yourself. I do this, but I'm not like that. I have sinned, but that person is outrageous. In fact, maybe some of you, because of this change, ought to consider the elders who may have deeply disappointed you, angered you, irritated you. I'm sure they have. We have. For some. Now realize that Jesus was humble, patient, gentle, and forbearing in love with you and with your fellow church members and your elders. In fact, he was so to the point of laying down his life for them and for you. Now think of how arrogant we must be to think we can look down upon, discard, gossip about, 
slander, and reject those whom Jesus loves. We must pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace through growing in holy character, becoming like Christ, being imitators of God. That is the strength of a church body. It is actually, you'll know this if you live long enough, the riches of your relationship, the richness of your relationship with people is built over a long-term walking together and disappointing each other and staying committed to one another. You walk away from every disappointing relationship, you will never know deep, rich relationships. You won't know them because your only context for any relation will be, you disappoint me, I'm out. You disappointed me, you're out. And you will never have trust with anybody long-term. It's only after you disappoint one another and stay committed to one another that you actually trust one another. It may seem strange and upside down to hear, but our humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing and love is our strength as we walk together this side of heaven. That sounds upside down. What's your strength? Humility, lowliness, patience, and long-suffering. That's my strength. Those all sound like weaknesses, don't they? Even the best of us make but feeble efforts, yet the Lord will bless our efforts to this end and will strengthen us together. Matthew Henry rightly said this, many slender twigs, that's us, many slender twigs, you understand that? You're not a mighty oak tree. You're not even the the root nor the tree, you're the branch. And in this case, he's saying you're a slender twig. Many slender twigs bound together become strong. The bond of peace is the strength of society or the church. It is important, though, that we realize that Paul is calling us to live consistently with what is true in Christ and by the Spirit. And that's our second, really, and final point, the unity of the Spirit that we already have as Christians. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is, now I just want you to count as we go, There is one body, count the word one, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice Paul says one seven times. He is speaking to a complete and comprehensive unity of the body of Christ. Now note that he has two groups of three followed by one final term. Two groups of three. The first triad or first group of three has to do with the one spirit. Look at Ephesians 4.4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. All three of those terms, one body, one spirit, and what? One hope that belongs to your call. All three of those terms have to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us to the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He is the one who has inwardly called us, Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. They all have to do with the Holy Spirit. Second triad has to do with the Lord. The second three, look at Ephesians 4, 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. These all have reference to Jesus Christ. He is our one Lord. 
He is the object of our Christian faith. Faith here does not mean the subjective faith you have. It means the faith, the religion, what we believe as Christians. There's one faith. How do I know that? If you go down further in Ephesians 4, we're going to grow up into the faith. There is one Lord, one object of our Christian faith. He is the one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, a baptism which is with water. There is one Lord to whom we are subjects. There is one Christ who is the object of our faith. There is one baptism. One, as Charles Hodge rightly said, all the baptized. By the way, this is a Presbyterian, just so you know. All the baptized make the same profession. Did you hear that? All the baptized make the same profession, accept the same covenant, the new covenant, and are consecrated to the same Lord and Redeemer. They are, therefore, one body. Now, the third phrase is not a triad. It just has one term. Look at Ephesians 4, 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You might notice a, like an echo with a Romans 11.36 here. This is talking about the Father. This is a nod to the fountain of all life and blessedness. We all share this triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is for this reason, it is for this reason that you've heard Ian Hamilton say here, and you've heard me repeat, when you think about how you deal with other Christians, whether in a different Protestant Christian church or in your own body, when you think about it, he says, remember, they are elect of the Father, blood-bought by the Son, renewed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Who am I to speak ill of them or to put them away from me? If the Father elected them and the Son bought them with his blood and the Holy Spirit indwells with them, who am I to think I can look down on them and put them away from me or speak ill of them? It is sheer arrogance to think that other believers are not good enough for you. Now, please hear this. We are not being commanded to be united. We're not, I can keep emphasizing this. We're not being commanded to be united. We're being told about the reality of our unity in Christ and by the Spirit. It is not a unity we create or make happen. It is a unity we maintain and walk worthy of. In other words, when Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17 that we would all be one, his prayer was, in fact, answered. It was answered. That's speaking to our spiritual unity. When he says one body, he obviously knows that Ephesus is not the only church. So with the body of Christ, universal. The word Catholic, meaning universal. The church Catholic the church universal, there is one body. It is not speaking to a kind of ecclesiastical unity, it's speaking to spiritual unity. What I mean by ecclesiastical unity, it, it's not saying that all churches must be in the same denomination. That is the claim of Rome today. It is a false claim. 
there can be visible division. In fact, because we live in different places, there must be some sense of visible division. There can be visible division without divisiveness in spirit and behavior. Please do not misunderstand me here, though. I'm not strictly saying this unity is only spiritual and unseen. We are to work out this unity in our visible institutions. But to argue that it means, I want to argue that it means that we are all in the same church, when they say that, or the same denomination, they miss the point. We can be in distinct church denominations. Denominationalism, you understand, is just when conviction meets freedom. Now you have denominations. We can be in distinct church denominations and still eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in our local churches and between our churches and denominations. We can. The invisible church, the one body, the church Catholic universal, cannot be separated or divided. Cannot be. Hear this. The invisible church, the one body of Christ, exists in an indestructible unity. Yes, we have a variety of distinct Orthodox Protestant churches that are divided around particular, if you will, churchly convictions. For our purposes today, there is a visible division between Reformed Baptists and the Presbyterian Reformed churches. There is a visible division. And while that visible division exists, we must recognize that we're all bound together as adopted children of the Father through the purchased grace of Christ by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are one in Christ. That's our reality. However, we strive to maintain unity both in our visible churches and between our visible churches. Just so you know, that's why we continue to have a church fellowship that the pastors meet together made up of men from different denominations. But we have a deep unity in the faith. That's why you can go to a Banner of Truth conference and see Presbyterians and Dutch Reformed and Baptists all speaking together. We have one Christ. One faith. So you go to the Shepherds Conference and see guys from a variety from MacArthur's brand of dispensationalism. If you don't know what that is, if you do, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you don't. That's okay. To R.C. Sproul's Presbyterianism. To Al Mohler's Reformed Baptist e-convictions, right? <laughs> All across that spectrum. There they are preaching together. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One hope. One spirit. Listen, I want to be clear, as we wrestle together with this doctrine, as we wrestle together with it, we need to do so in a manner that honors Christ and one another. Some of my closest friends in pastoral ministry, some of the men I look to and respect and take advice from the most are Reformed Baptists, and some of them are Presbyterians. Some of them are Dutch Reformed. We have disagreements, but our unity in Christ is too deep for us to have divisiveness. We need to walk through this in a manner that is humbly committed to learning, to loving, and to caring for one another. We need to be committing to own the other as our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the language that struck me the most in reading someone like John Flavel, 
as he critiqued the Baptist view in the 17th century and reading the Baptists in their preface and in their, especially their appendix on baptism, both of them use this language. We own one another. Presbyterian John Flavel, Matthew Henry, another Presbyterian, I own those people as my brothers in Christ. And I believe Christ owns them too. Baptists, I own those Presbyterians and congregations as my brothers in Christ. And I believe Christ owns them too. We have to be committed to that. Whatever you do, be supremely committed to being a godly Christian who walks worthy of our gospel calling, our glorious inheritance in Christ, and who eagerly maintains the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May we live consistently with those convictions. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as a people, not only with this issue, but with all the issues that confront us, to walk together in love, to be humble and patient and gentle and long-suffering, to grow in holiness, to know our own sin and the extravagant grace that's been shown to us in Christ and to imitate Christ in being gracious to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.